very special event, event number 60, the final event of the 2019 Ledbury Poetry Festival. And what a hell of a way to end, if I may say so. A very special welcome to our sponsors tonight, uh, John and Lynn Goodwin, uh, and our thanks also to the University of Worcester for sponsoring the Canadian Council for the Arts uh, and our own Arts Council, without whose continuing support the Ledbury Poetry Festival would be a very different uh, sort of an animal. Ursula Owen is chairing tonight's event, and she will be telling you something about um, Margaret Atwood. Um, I'm going to tell you something about Ursula Owen, but I'm not going to repeat everything I said last night, because that, yeah, I'm not going to, because <laughs> that would be extremely boring. Uh, so I'm not going to repeat uh, this litany of praise for this remarkable woman, her talents, and her achievements. But I am going to repeat one thing. Ursula is a trustee and a friend of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. Anyone who was here yesterday knows how blessed we are to have friends like her, and how doubly blessed we are to have Ursula and Margaret here this evening for our pleasure, our joy, and our entertainment. Well, thank you, and um, I, I don't know how many people were here yesterday as well as today. I'm going to say some of the same things about Margaret, but uh, I hope you'll forgive me. But this is, um, for people who don't know, this is an event that Mark Fisher, who's sitting at the back, who was one of our a wonderful patron of the festival, invented, which is sort of desert island poems in which poets choose eight poems they will can't survive without on the desert island. So um, I'll just say a few things about Margaret to begin with. She, the first thing I want to say, which I did say yesterday, but I want to say it more emphatically, is that she's a political... For me, it's a terribly important thing about her is that she's a political poet in the best sense of the word. And uh, that is an important thing in a world where political doesn't often, people often th are rather sneery about it, but she really is. She was born in Ottawa in 1939, and she started to write when, when she was very young. And at the age of 16, she knew she wanted to be a writer. She's published 17 books of poetry, 20 novels, 10 books of nonfiction, eight collections of short fiction, eight children's books, and one graphic novel, and, and three French hens. <laughs> <laughs> Two graphic novels. <laughs> and um, her first published work was, in fact, a poetry book called Double Persephone, which she published when she was 22. And so, you know, for those of you who were there yesterday, you know how wonderful her poetry is. And for those of you who missed it, buy the books. Um, <laughs> so she's now going to do Desert Island Poems, which was, as I say, invented by Mark Fisher. 
And I just, um, I f the first thing I want to say to you is, I'm assuming from what I know of you, that uh, you'll be extremely competent on the desert island. You will get your act together and you look after yourself and um, you won't need any luxuries and uh, uh, you won't, you'll have the Bible and Shakespeare for your... <laughs> and then um, you have these eight poems to keep you going till you're rescued. Am I right about the competence? Uh, you're right about the competence. When people ask me this question about who I would like to have on the desert island with me... A person, you mean? A person. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid I chose Lord Baden-Powell because <laughs> <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be good at the camp craft. You wouldn't have to worry about sexual assault. <laughs> So all in all, you know, he would, he would be able to catch the fish and what, open the clams and things that you would want. And I, I didn't realize that these poems that I was supposed to choose were going to be things that were supposed to keep me going on a desert island. Yeah, to keep you warm. and It's warm on desert islands. <laughs> Maybe to keep me cool. And I um, have to tell you that you can't have a person. No, no, I'm not going to have a person. I probably wouldn't have any poems either because I'd be too busy with the clowns and things like that. But, uh, but, but we narrowed it down. I, I, I gave you a range. I said, is it poems yes. from all time? Would yes. you rather have yes. um, female poets from different ages? Yes. Would you rather have female Canadian yes. poets? And we settled on we female chose. poets from a relatively modern time. I want to time. say that she's a true egalitarian, and she let me choose. I did, yes. I <laughs> and, did. and I that's chose, chose female yes. poets. Um, she could have chosen hundreds of poems, of course. So she gave me the choices. They came Canadian poets, American poets, male and female poets. And I picked women poets, important to, to Margaret. Um, Many of them have been her friends, or she's edited them, or she's taught them, or one thing or, or, one another. Thing or another. Yes. So I think, without ado, we sh we should start with the first poet. So the first poet is called P. K. Page, and she is was in fact a female person, and I read this poem in 1961. Uh, in the Victoria College reading room, which had an assortment of magazines, including literary magazines, and I used to spend a lot of time there, I think as young poets do, figuring out where they might publish. <laughs> That's what they're <laughs> actually doing. Uh, and, I've, and I came across this poem, which I am now going to read to you. And the magazine in which I read it was called the, the Tamarack Review. Does it still exist? No. No. No, but it, it existed for quite a while, and it was the one that young poets of that time wanted to publish in. Right. And uh, I did achieve that. Did you? Oh, yes, well before it went defunct. Well done. Uh, and if you don't know what a tamarack is, it's a kind of tree. Not like a tamarisk tree, is no. it the same? It's no. not the same. Okay. 
It's a Canadian tree. <laughs> okay. This poem is called Snowmen. Innocent single snowman, overnight brings him a bright omen, a thunderbolt of white. But once I saw a mute in every yard come like a plague, a stalk still multitude, and all stone buttoned, bun faced, and absurd. And next day they were still there, but each had changed a little, as if all had inched forward or back, I barely knew which, and grayed a little too, grown sinister and disreputable in their sooty fur, numb, unmoving, and nothing moving near. And as far as I could see, the snow was scarred only with angels' wing marks or the feet of birds like twigs broken upon the snow or shards discarded. And I could hear no sound as far as I could hear except a round kind of an echo without end, rung like a hoop below them and above, jarring the air they had no need of in a landscape without love. And what did I think as a young poet? I thought, wow. Yes, I was going to say, yes. you thought wow about I that. I thought wow because it beautiful form and yeah. really creepy. Yeah, creepy. Um, so P.K. <laughs> Page later became a friend, and later I became her editor. Oh. Yeah, so I, I put together a collected poems for her when I had some, oh. some power uh, <laughs> in my hands. Uh, and she remained a friend. She remained a friend. Yes. And does that poem still... I still think, wow. Think a lot. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and at that time and place in Canada, there, 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 were, there was only one other female poet of my age. The others were older. Right. And the older ones divided into two kinds, those who were benevolent and helpful and those who were really unpleasant. <laughs> and, and she was, and she was benevolent hel and helpful, always. Yes. So I'd, I'd, I vowed when I, would, when I grew up, I would try to be benevolent to and helpful. It <laughs> hasn't always worked out, Ursula. I know you think I'm not always benevolent and helpful. <laughs> but I'm there sure you, you are. are. Yes, there you are. Um, so the next one. So the next one is a poet called Jay McPherson. Also female. Uh, female, and yes. also They're all female. Uh, Canadian, although she began by being English. She began by being English, and then she was evacuated out of England during the war okay. and ended up first in Newfoundland and then ultimately in Toronto, where she was my university professor. Ah. Taught me Victorian poetry. Very well, too, she did. Wow. Um, and she is, if you've never come across her, quite an extraordinary um, poet, but of a very peculiar kind. Um, to place you in time, there were four colleges at the University of Toronto then, and they were arranged denominationally. So Anglican Trinity. Um, University College, non-denominational, St. Mike's Catholic, and Victoria, where I went, was something called the United Church of Canada. 
and it was the only one that hired female professors uh -huh. in the English department. What year, what kind of year was that? That was uh, 1957 to 61. Huh. Yes. Uh, and it was also the most egalitarian of those colleges having been formed by a combo of the more moderate Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. Yeah. So of a more democratic um, yeah. kind of arrangement. Yeah. And it had the best, best English department in the university and uh, the star of it was somebody called Northrop Fry. Oh, yeah. So that, this is the era, the era of mythology. And this is called The Beauty of Job's Daughters. The old, the mad, the blind have fairest daughters. Take Job, the beasts the accuser sends at evening, shoulder his house and shake it. He's not there, attained in age to inwardness of daughters, in all the land, no women found so fair. Angels and sons of God are nearest neighbors, and even the accuser may repair to walk with Job and pleasures of his daughters, with shining, wide shining rooms, more warmly lit at evening, gardens beyond whose secrets scent the air. Not wiles of men, nor envy of the neighbors, Riches of earth, nor what heaven holds more rare, can take from Job the beauty of his daughters, the gardens in the rock, music at evening, and cup so full that all who come must share. Perhaps we passed them. It was late or evening, and surely those were desert stumps, not daughters. In fact, we doubt that they were ever there. The old, the mad, the blind have fairest daughters. In all the land, no women found so fair. Still cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think that's, <clears throat> it's perfectly done. So if, you, if you're not acquainted with her, you can go online and find her um, first collection, which is called The Boatman. And uh, then you can find uh, her second one, and she only ever did two. She only did she two. She only did two. Gosh. Uh, and um, they're very, very condensed. So when you found this poem, was that because you were being taught by her? Oh uh, no, it was a bit later than that because she didn't write it until after I'd finished being taught oh. by her. Oh, so right. when I was being taught by her, she had only published *The Boatman*. Right. Um, so then she she went she went on to publish more, but then at at a certain point in time she just stopped. And did you stay in touch with her? Of course. Yeah. All, yes. all, all her life. Yeah. All her life. Yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, she was extremely smart. She, um, uh, but I think she always uh, felt out of touch with. Um, I think she always felt somehow rested out of her um, her background and plunked down somewhere. She had a very difficult mother. What else can I tell you? <laughs> and come to think of it, her father was quite difficult as well. <laughs> they were both difficult. Uh, and did she 
And did she, enc she encourage you in your poetry writing? Well, I guess so. Yeah, she did teach. You could take a course called, called English 4-0. And uh, <laughs> that was where people got together and talked, their po talked about their poems. You, you didn't get any marks for it. Um, they read them out? Well, we read them, but it was a very was early days for that kind of thing, yeah. so it was yeah. pretty um, yeah. slapdash. But we were all into, and, and at that time, if you were interested in the arts, you, you were pretty much interested in all of them, and you did everything, because not many people were. So one moment you might be editing the literary magazine, the other you might be painting the scenery for a play, and things like that. Uh, so it was kind of all hands on deck all hands being about five people. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd say she, th these people were not encouraging as such, but they, no. were, um, they were doing things that they considered important. Yeah. And therefore, if you were doing those things, that that was a validation yes. um, for you. And it was presumably a battleground for women to do it. No, it wasn't, because nobody wanted to do it, really. Uh, so, by which I mean there, there weren't that many men interested in it oh. at that point. They all hey. wanted to be lawyers and things ah. at, at college. Ah. So it left it open a bit Gosh. for, for this women. This was in the 60s? No, the 50s. The 50s, in yeah. late, late 50s, late 50s yeah. up to 61. Yeah. Gosh. So there, were, there was a poetry scene and there were men in it, but they weren't men uh, in that university setting. No. It was considered that you went to university to get a, a job in a profession right. if you were a man. Right. And if you were a woman, you went there to get some kind of thing that could amuse you uh, while you entertain <laughs> your family. Did other things, although nobody quite said that. Um, anyway, so that's how it was. And it was a lot of women doing these editings and directings and plays. and and even uh, right. uh, putting on, you know, satirical reviews and things like that. So, so are you painting a picture of Canada as a place where culture was marginalized? At that time, yes. It was shortly yeah. to become very different. So the, yeah. the, the big change came in the middle of the 60s. And it also came along with something called the Canada Council, um, which put money into the arts. Right. So, uh, but at the time of which I speak, mm. it was not considered something that people would do seriously. Mm. And any any writer of of our genera older of the the generation just older than ours would have gone to New York or or Paris or London, okay. because it was considered that there wasn't a market, uh, there wasn't the possibility of being a self-sustaining writer in that country unless you were writing um, picture books or something oh, like that. Oh, gosh. You know, beautiful Canada. So if you went into a bookstore, <laughs> the real books, the real novels would be in, in literature, and the Canadian books, even if they were novels, would be with the cookbooks and, <laughs> really? and the red maple leaf calendars. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was the situation that we set out to change. Yes, yes. And you were conscious of it, very conscious Oh, very, of it. yes. Yeah. Yes, very, yeah. and pe people talked about it a lot, actually. Yeah. Okay, so shall we go to the third poem? 
The third poem is, um, is Adrian Rich, an American poet of the um, second wave women's movement. Let's place it there. And uh, this is a book I reviewed. So we're jumping ahead in time to the end of the 60s. End Let's see 60s. when this came out. Yeah. It came out. Um, 1973, OK, just about right exactly at that time. Right. So Summer of Love was end of the 60s. Second wave uh, women's movement broke upon my consciousness when I was in Edmonton, Alberta, where it had not penetrated. I, I heard about this from people who were writing letters to me from New York. <laughs> uh, the epicenter of all of that. And, yeah, they started early. In yeah, the Adrian was part of that yeah. generation. Yeah. So part of the generation that would have been told have four children, live in a bungalow, um, and don't have a job or a brain because... And she uh, did, did, did have three I, children. I think she, she did. She, yeah, she took a crack husband, at that. And then and didn't, she became gay. That's right. So she, uh, she sort of went the feminine mystique track. Yeah. And it was yeah. that generation that yeah. had felt so shoved back into a box and then eventually rebelled against it. Do you know about The Feminine Mystique? It was a famous book written by a woman called Betty Friedan in 1963. And it was about uh, middle-class women who'd been educated, got married, had 2.2 children, lived in the suburbs, their husbands went to work, and they waited for them to come home and feed them dinner, and they thought, is this all? And it had the most enormous effect. It did. Yeah, well, people at first read it in the bathroom with the door closed, so nobody would see them doing it. <laughs> uh, so, so that for was me, the it described. It didn't describe my generation, but it no. described a generation I recognized, which was just before. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. So I never had it in mind that I was going to live in a bungalow with the no, washer dryer no, and have an open-plan no. house. No, I was with no walls. teetering was on it. not in my <laughs> head whatsoever. No. Uh, but it was put into a lot of their heads, and they, and they tried to do it. Yeah. So diving into the wreck, a breakthrough book. And, um, and this is the title poem. First, having read the book of myths and loaded the camera and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armor of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I'm having to do this, not like Cousteau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here alone. There is a ladder. The ladder is always there, hanging innocently close to the side of the schooner. We know what it is for, we who have used it. Otherwise, it's a piece of maritime floss, some sundry equipment. I go down, rung after rung, and still the oxygen immerses me, the blue light, the clear atoms of our human air. I go down. My flippers cripple me. I crawl like an insect down the ladder, and there is no one to tell me when the ocean will begin. First, the air is blue, and then it is bluer, and then green, and then black. I am blacking out, and yet my mask is powerful. It pumps my blood with power. The sea is another story, 
The sea is not a question of power. I have to learn alone to turn my body without force in the deep element. And now it is easy to forget what I came for among so many who have always lived here, swaying their crenellated fans between the reefs. And besides, you breathe differently down here. I came to explore the wreck. The words are purposes. The words are maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. I stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed. The thing I came for, the wreck and not the story of the wreck, the thing itself and not the myth. The drowned face always staring toward the sun, the evidence of damage worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty the ribs of the disaster curving their assertion among the tentative haunters. This is the place and I am here, the mermaid whose dark hair streams black, the merman in his armored body. We circle silently about the wreck, we dive into the hold. I am she, I am he whose drowned face sleeps with open eyes, whose breasts still bear the stress, whose silver, copper, vermeil cargo lies obscurely inside barrels, half wedged and left to rot. We are the half-destroyed instruments that once held to a course, the water-eaten log, the fouled compass. We are, I am, you are, by cowardice or courage, the one who find our way back to this scene, carrying a knife, a camera, a book of myths in which our names do not appear. So do we need to talk about what that's about? <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, in the context of the whole book, it's the, the wreck as um, uh, gender relations that it ex have existed until that time. Yeah. And which she sees as having gone to the bottom, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So she, and that is what a lot of her work is, is dedicated to, is, is exploring the, the wreckage. Yeah. And seeing what might be brought out that of it. That would be found. Yeah, she was um, she was a really quite well known poet, um, and we published we didn't publish her poetry at Virago, but we did publish s some of her nonfiction, and the first thing we published was a book when she was already established was a book called Of Woman Born, which is a very extraordinary book about motherhood. Very, very, very detailed, very intellectual, very, very moving. And uh, when we published it, uh, we had great trouble getting it reviewed. And I happened to know the books editor of The Guardian, so I got him to, I said, please, will you review this book? And he did, but he got someone to review it. He didn't know this was going to happen. 
who spent about three quarters of a page bad-mouthing it and saying, how could this wonderful poet have written a book like this? Because it was very explicitly feminist. Well, this is explicitly feminist, but not understood by lots of people. So she, but she, she did, uh, she was a very extraordinary and um, revolutionary woman, really, wasn't she? Very tough-minded. Very tough-minded. Yes, you have to be. I think she... Yeah. I think she lived in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> Did she? And that must be really hard. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yes, where, they, where at Harvard they did not hire women. No. Not. No. They, they actually didn't. Have, they didn't. They, it was they a had policy. a policy. Yes, they had standards. <laughs> <laughs> they hired dead white men, in other words. No, they were still alive. <laughs> Yes, and that, you know a lot of them are very good. I, yes, some of them are good. Not, let us not be. No, no, no. Totally I'm not being. That was a bitchy. very bad yes. joke. Yes. <laughs> um, and neither did the university, the university college at University of Toronto hire women, and they had a policy. And the others just quietly didn't hire them without a policy, except <laughs> for the one that I went to. So this is another. Um, this is Anna Akhmatova uh, from Russia, who lived through the USSR being dissed by Stalin and his buddies, and basically shut down and not able to publish. And although she herself was not sent to a gulag or shot, uh, a huge number of the people that she knew were. Yeah. And um, and her son was put in in prison. Yeah. And uh, she, she wrote this poem called Requiem in, in parts. And things were so um, dangerous that she did not preserve any of the pieces of paper in which she, she wrote it. She burnt them. But she, she taught each of the parts to a friend of hers, and they memorized the parts. Yeah. And then when things became possible again, she reassembled yeah. the parts from her friends none of whom betrayed her. Wow. You know, they all went around carrying this part of a very dangerous wow. poem in their heads. Wow. And uh, it's always seemed to me really e exemplary uh, of the, the lengths to which people will mm. go to mm. somehow get a message out mm. of a very impossible mm. and dangerous situation. Mm. Mm. So the poem is called Requiem, and she's writing about the terror that went on. Uh, she says, 1935 to 1940. This is when Stalin was purging just, just about everybody he could get his hands on. Um, and Yezhov was the head of the Secret Service in those days. So I'm going to read the preface to the little bit of the poem I will then read. Instead of a preface, in the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day, somebody in the crowd identified me. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold, who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. 
Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Leningrad, 1st of April, 1957. It was not until 1957 that she could publish this poem, after Stalin was, was dead. So the little bit of it that I'm going to read is called um, To Death. You will come in any case, so why not now? How long I wait and wait, the bad times fall. I have put out the light and opened the door for you, because you are simple and magical. Assume then any form that suits your wish. Take aim and blast at me with poison shot or strangle me like an efficient mugger or else infect me, typhus be my lot, or spring out of the fairy tale you wrote, the one we're sick of hearing day and night where the blue hatband marches up the stairs led by the janitor pale with fright. It's all the same to me. The Yenisei swirls, the North Star shines as it will shine forever, and the blue luster of my loved one's <coughs> eyes is clouded over by the final horror. Yeah. And I will follow up. Um, with a poem by Carolyn Forche from her collection, The Country Between Us. Carolyn Forche was uh, somebody that I met under the following circumstances. Do you remember when Mount St. Helena's blew up, the volcano on the west coast of the United States? I was due to do a reading in Portland at that time, which was theoretically within the range of the falling ash. So I phoned them up and I said, is the ash going to fall on Portland? And they said, no, 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 the wind <laughs> never blows. It always blows in the other direction. <laughs> so I went out to Portland to give a reading with Carolyn Forche, a young poet whom I had never met. And as we were reading, I looked out the window and I thought, it's snowing. <laughs> ash coming down. Well, of course, in volcanic ash, you can't uh, take a plane. No. They won't fly in it. It destroys the engine. The trains had already all gone, um, and no motors were running, so there were no cars or buses. And we, we, we kind of twisted the arm of somebody into driving us to Eugene, which was out of the fall zone, uh, where we hired a car because we both had planes to catch. Sure. We were young. We had planes to catch. We thought that was important. Um, and we, we drove all night. It was in the days when I drove. We drove all night and taking turns and stopping at things like Smitty's Pancake House. And um, on the way, we told each other stuff to keep awake. Yeah. And what she told me was the time she had spent in El Salvador uh, a news story that had not yet broken. It was a time of uh, murders, repressions, um, obliterations of indigenous people, uh, priests being killed, um, right-wing, basically, um, stormtroopers uh, wiping people out. And she had, she had been there, she had knew these people, she had heard these stories, and she had written poems about it which she could not at that time get published. 
in the United States. People were too scared because the, the dare I say it, uh, CIA was involved. Right. It was the time of uh, the U.S. supporting regimes like that because at least they were anti-communist. <laughs> You've heard this. <laughs> uh, so I said, uh, let me, I said in my ever helpful girl guide way, <laughs> let me see what I can do. And, and so I did, and we, we broke the story through Canada. Because once you'd broken a story, once you'd broken a news yeah, story, as you yeah. know, other news agencies can pick it up. So this is a poem from the country between us. And um, I note that she has just published a memoir of that time, which begins with the title of which is the first line of this prose poem. So the title of the memoir is What You Have Heard Is True. But the title of this poem is The Colonel. What you have heard is true. I was in his house. His wife carried a tray of coffee and sugar. His daughter filed her nails. His son went out for the night. There were daily papers, pet dogs, a pistol on the cushion beside him. The moon swung bare on its black cord over the house. On the television was a cop show. It was in English. Broken bottles were embedded in the walls around the house to scoop the kneecaps from a man's legs or cut his hands to lace. On the windows, there were gratings like those in liquor stores. We had dinner, rack of lamb, good wine, a gold bell was on the table for calling the maid. The maid brought green mangoes, salt, a type of bread. I was asked how I enjoyed the country. There was a brief commercial in Spanish. His wife took everything away. There was some talk then of how difficult it had become to govern. The parrot said hello on the terrace. The colonel told it to shut up and pushed himself from the table. My friend said to me with his eyes, say nothing. The colonel returned with a sack used to bring groceries home. He spilled many human ears on the table. They were like dried peach halves. There is no other way to say this. He took one of them in his hands, shook it in our faces, dropped it into a water glass. It came alive there. I am tired of fooling around, he said. As for the rights of anyone, tell your people they can go fuck themselves. He swept the ears to the floor with his arm and held the last of his wine in the air. Something for your poetry, no, he said. Some of the ears on the floor caught this scrap of his voice. Some of the ears on the floor were pressed to the ground. Extraordinary poem. So, shall we go to the next one? I'm going to ask you later on whether you feel what the connection between your choices are, or maybe that's too. I think they're just, they're all people I've known. They're all people. Or, they're all people or you know. in the okay. case of Akhmajiba, somebody that I read in youth was very yeah. deeply impressed by, but, but even more impressed by the story of, of how she managed to preserve to get it out, yeah. the poem. Yeah. And the, I could draw a little line to <laughs> stories like that, and therefore to the story in The Handmaid's Tale in which somebody has recorded 
of witnessing and hidden it. Oh yes. So that it wouldn't, oh. so that it wouldn't be destroyed. So if you're writing under those circumstances, you're writing in secret, by definition, and then you're you're hiding things, hoping they will be discovered later, um, because as as Orwell said so memorably in 1984, who am I writing for if it's if the, if the if the future is the same as the present, um, I, I won't be heard. And if the future is different from the present, I won't be understood. <laughs> so it's, it's always that conundrum. Yeah. Who, yeah. Are, yeah. Who, who is your potential listener? Yeah. And if you're writing a secret poem like that, it is a very hopeful act because you assume a secret. You assume a listener in the future, even yeah. though your present seems very hopeless. Yeah. You assume there will be one. Yeah. So this is a, a jump to quite a, a different uh, kind of poem. And it's by Anne Carson, who's um, published a number of pretty extraordinary books, and a lot of them on the subject of intergender relationships. So in a way, it's a circling back to the Adrian Rich poem. Adrian Rich, yeah. And finally. So it's from the, a, a book called The Beauty of the Husband, which describes the crack-up of a marriage in pretty um, supercharged terms. This was not a good um, divorce. <laughs> it's not a friendly divorce. They weren't pals afterwards. Um, and finally, a good dedication is indirect, overheard, etc., as if Verdi's La Donna e Mobile had been a poem scratched on glass. That's the title. His mistress at that time, indeed the very concept mistress for him, was French. Friends of his told me that she didn't wash in, and in bars was inclined to order liters of champagne on his tab. I can imagine how he would frown, curse, sigh, lift his hands, and adore it. He took me to a movie about a bookshop in Paris whose owner liked to have his assistant mount a ladder to fetch a book. Then he slides his hands up her leg. Just that, one hand, momentary, her blush heats the theater. Every time he said, go, up she went. How do people get power over one another, he said wonderingly as we came out onto the street. Bruises, too, filled him with curiosity. I could not meet this need. I hear she did. The reason I mentioned washing is that it puzzled me why none of this seemed unclean in his study of it. None of it was orgasmic for him. His thrust, analytic, you could say, as if discovering a new crystal, is innocence just one of the disguises of beauty? He could fill structures of threat with a light like the earliest olive oil. I began to understand nature as something seamed and deep into which one plunged, going dark. Yes, I am delaying again. Yes, I am delaying again. <laughs> Clothed in flames and rolling through the sky is how I felt the night he told me he had a mistress and with shy pride slid out a photograph. I can't see the face, I said angrily, throwing it down. He looked at me. 
We were at a window restaurant high above the street, married a little more than a year. Quick work, I said. Are you going to be art, he said. I broke the glass and jumped. Now, of course, you know that isn't the true story. What broke wasn't glass. What fell to earth wasn't body. But still, when I recall the conversation, it's what I see. Me, a fighter pilot bailing out over the channel. Me, as kill. Oh, no, we're not enemies, he said. I love you. I love you both. Is it not Mr. Rochester who grinds his teeth and tells us in less than two minutes with its gliding green hiss, jealousy can eat to a heart's core, this formula having occurred to him as he sat in the musk and amber of a Paris balcony, watching his opera beauty arrive on the arm of a strange cavalier? To stay human is to break a limitation. Like it if you can. Like it if you dare. So that shows the signs of it being a poem written in 2001. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, I don't think you could um, you couldn't have, have written it. it in 1980. No. Or 70. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So this is a West Coast Canadian poet called Lorna Crozier who's written a <coughs> number of quite wonderful books. And this one is from a book called Inventing the Hawk by Lorna Crozier. And let's find the date on that one. It is um, it's um, 1991, a little bit earlier. Something you don't have here, skunks. You don't have animal ones. <laughs> The morning cold with dawn, I stand at the window, first light spilling through the glass. Across the yard, I see my neighbor on his front step. He waves, then points a rifle at my head. Yesterday, he told me he'd buy a gun to shoot the skunks who come up from the river, drawn from the willows to our apple cores, our overripe melons and sour milk are almost empty jars of jam. Night raiders, they dip into the wells of the garbage cans. I have imagined them, their narrow faces peering in the windows while I sleep, turning the thin bones of dream over and over in their paws. Now it is my neighbor's face I see through the window, the precision of his eyes and hands. He waves and grins, then lines me up, practices his sight. We are in this together now. He studies my face like a lover, knows the curve of my forehead, the slight indentation of my temples, the blue pulse beating there. After dark, when he waits in the alley, the smell of me will stink his eyes, fill his mouth, make his nostrils flare. For I will have been there before him, 
driving ahead of me, these dark sisters with their slow walk down to the river, the white on their backs blazing in the moonlight, their sweet mouths red with jam. And now a, um, a British poet who began as an American poet, and, but has been here for a very long time. And that would be Ruth Fainlight. And um, we've known Ruth for thousands of years. She was uh, married to Ellen Silito, as you, you probably know Ruth Fainlight. I'm talking to you or something. Yes, I, <laughs> yes. I did. Sorry. <laughs> You're talking to the world. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so I've heard a number of wonderful stories from her. Um, and this poem is called The Knot. And I thought it was a good one to end with. One of them showed me how to split a reed and plate it into a holder for my hammock. When you know you've got to get away, she said, use this piece of cloth, faded red, and knot it tight at either end. Find someone far from the children and dogs and vague old people and women thumping grain, those noisy men around the smoky fire. Loop it under a branch or over a beam in one of the empty huts at the edge of the clearing. Then crawl inside when you need to be alone to hear the story, the story you tell yourself all day but sometimes cannot hear. And sometimes there in my hammock, words would come and cluster together like wasps between the poles and matting of the roof as black as rotting fruit or drying membrane, a blossom of words in a dusty ray of light. Words would form a knot and start a story. Um, we've just got a little time, 10 minutes max, I think, if anyone would like to ask Margaret questions about that or make a statement. <laughs> is there a, do you, do you is feel, there a, do you feel, sh okay, here's, here's somebody. Okay. Here's somebody, yes. <laughs> he's, he's, he's there. There's somebody with a hand up. Oh, and there's also one there. Uh, good evening. Um, how to phrase this. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued through your career, your, your body of work, um, women, feminism has obviously taken the fore. And I'd like to know briefly, um, are we there yet? <laughs> where, where's, where are we going next? Where, oh, you've, you've had so many developments what would you like to see happening okay. now? What, what I would like to see happening and what is likely to happen are two different things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like everybody to live happily ever after. I mean, that's a long world peace. Uh, the um, global climate catastrophe reverses and disappears and um, all of that kind of thing. Is, is that likely? Uh, maybe eventually. I don't know. Um, 
there's always there's always a pull between utopia and dystopia, and and if you if you if you cease to imagine things being better, they will get worse. <laughs> but sometimes when you try to make them get better, they also get worse. So uh, it's very it very rarely is true that when you try to make them worse, they get better. Although some people delusionally think that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is this kind of apocrypha story that goes on, and it goes on. The New Jerusalem awaits, but first we have to have Armageddon and kill a lot of people. And uh, you get through the Armageddon part and wait for the New Jerusalem. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe, maybe avoid killing a lot of people just to begin with, because it's not necessarily going to get you to the New Jerusalem anyway. Uh, so what, what shall we say to that about women or about anything? Because it's all connected. Uh, climate catastrophe is bad particularly for women because uh, flood, fire, and, uh, flood and flood, fire, and drought lead to famine. Famine leads to war, and war is bad for women. Uh, I mean, it's bad for everybody, but uh, particularly. So we are, this time, all in it together. How about that? Sorry to be so gloomy, but uh, there you are. And then the person who was, had a hand up down in the middle right yes, there. Someone yes, someone there. Just where you sit, where do you live now, Margaret? Where do I live now? Oh, yes. <laughs> It's a loaded question. Why does he want to know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Let's examine the word live. Let's examine <laughs> the word where. Oh, uh, yes. I, I, uh, I go to in the, and fro in the world and walk up and down in it. <laughs> Who knows what that is a quote from? It's the book of Job, and it's spo spoken by Satan. <laughs> yes, God says, what have you been up to? And that's his answer. <laughs> From going to and fro in the world and walking up and down in it, have you considered my servant Job? Yes. <laughs> uh, we live some of the time in Toronto. Sometimes we live in the city. Sometimes we live in the town. Sometimes we live in the country. Sometimes we live in the town. That's a quote. It's from a ballad called Goodnight Irene, about a man considering, never mind. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so sometimes we live in Toronto, sometimes we live about two hours north of it, and sometimes we live four hours south of it in the middle of Lake Erie. And um, sometimes we live in other countries, such as this one, from time to time. So we move around here and there. <laughs> Sometimes I live on airplanes. <laughs> Get onto an airplane and I think, home. <laughs> Any other questions? If there are no other questions. If there are no other questions. Maybe I will sing my little song. Sing your song. Because I, I know you felt shortchanged because I sang <laughs> last night. Sing your yeah, song. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to sing you one of the hymns from the year of the flood. 
which is about a cult of uh, green religious people who live on flat rooftops in a slum in the world of Mad Adam. And uh, they are strict vegetarians and they cultivate vegetables on their rooftop and they attempt to combine strict scripture with uh, a green theology. So they have uh, festivals of different kinds of life, um, sort of bird life, plant life, sharks. Um, they, leave, they leave nothing out. And um, this is for the, the festival of underground life. And if you think of underground life, most of it is quite small. It's speculated that if all the ants in the world died, that would be the end of us, by the way. Well, because they, they cultivate the soil, and uh, things yeah. would get very hard and baked if, if uh, small, ant, small bioforms were not cultivating the soil. So the festival of underground life is a children's festival, and this is a children's hymn. Which they sing. They sing. They do. The, 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 cor the choir, the Buds and Blooms Choir sings it. <laughs> mm. We praise the tiny perfect moles that garden underground. The ant, the worm, the nematode, wherever they are found. They live their whole lives in the dark, unseen by human sight. The earth is like the air to them. Their day is like our night. <laughs> they turn the soil and till it. They make the plants to thrive. The earth would be a desert if they were not alive. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Little carrion beetle that seek unlikely places return our husks to elements and tidy up our spaces. And so for God's small creatures beneath the field and wood, let us today give joyful thanks, for God has found them good. Let us today give joyful thanks, for God has found them good. <laughs> okay.